Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is the Reading Women Podcast, where we are reclaiming half the bookshelf by talking about books by or about women. And today, I am very, very excited to say that we have Sarah Perry here with us, and she will be talking about her new novel, The Essex Serpent, which in the U.S. is out from Custom House, and in the U.K. it's out from Serpent's Tale. So welcome, Sarah. We're excited to have you. Thank you very much for inviting me. And as we talked about a little bit, we, we've been looking forward to this so much. Um, Kendra and I both enjoyed your book immensely. It was completely delightful and completely unexpected, and we just haven't been able to shut up about it, quite honestly. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. Yes, I bought it for so many people for Christmas. And I feel like I'm in the U.S., but I feel like I cheated because I used Book Depository and I bought all my friends the U.K. editions. Like, I was like, here, have this book. <laughs> now that's devotion. Thank you very much. That's really good. Uh, and we have to stop a second and talk about that cover because, oh my goodness, it is like cover of the year. It really it's is. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? It's designed by uh, Pete Dyer, who's the in-house uh, designer at Serpent's Tale. And then I honestly think it's had a really big part to play in the success of the book because I think it's really easy if you're a woman writer of historical fiction to be saddled with a sappy kind of generic front cover showing a windblown woman gazing wistfully out over a marshland. And, you know, I feel like that would have really misrepresented the book and I would have you know, had a tender tantrum. Um, so to be presented with this <laughs> image, which I think is like a visual representation of what the book aims to do in that it's very deeply rooted in 19th century William Morris design, but it's also sort of very contemporary and very unusual and very striking. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. I want, I want the house wallpapered in it. It's so good. <laughs> yes, it's true. And then when the Waterstones edition came out with the blue cover and with oh, the silver yes. foil, I just, oh. Yeah, yeah. I want all the additions, all the additions. We'll talk about this in a second, but I think it really fits the inside and how magical it is. But uh, I won't give any spoilers for a later discussion. <laughs> so as we were saying, like, you know, the Essex Serpent is now finally out in the U.S. So congratulations for that. So kind of what has it been like to see your book be so popular in the U.K. and like now it seems like it's enjoying a same level of uh, popularity or accolades here in the U.S.? I, to be honest with you, I think my main feeling is one of relief because, um, <laughs> you know, last year and uh, over the last, you know, 12 months, the book had the kind of uh, critical praise and the kind of success that every writer secretly dreams of at three o'clock in the morning and we never really think it's going to happen um, because it's like lightning striking you know it's something you can't plan for it's something that happens very rarely and then it happened to me and I, I was overwhelmed with a feeling of kind of luck and gratitude and then I thought I'm going to get punished for this uh, you know I had this really weird kind of um, like really bad theology feeling that um, that I would be punished for having been so lucky. And I thought, well, the punishment will be that it, that it just doesn't translate to the US, that the, you know, the fact that it's so deeply rooted in British myth and in English landscape will mean that it completely tanks. And I was so nervous. So when the first review came through, which I think was the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, and it was so generous and so positive. I think I slept well for the first time in about two months. 
Um, so yeah, I'm I'm very grateful and very very relieved. I've heard uh, some another author describe having a book come out as like giving birth to a child, and you know you're all kinds of stressed when it comes out. You just feel immense kind of relief, and especially since you know everyone loves the Essex Serpent, must be amazing you know, for you that your your child basically has been accepted by the literary community. Yeah, and I, I try to learn that um, my work is not me, but I, I'm afraid I haven't got there yet. You know, I, I don't really see much of a dividing line between myself and my work. So, you know, when people don't like my work, and, you know, there's been readers who, who really don't like it, then um, it feels very personal. So I suppose as, as the years go by, you gradually learn to separate the two. But, um, yeah, I felt quite invested. In how, in how it would do and just really thrilled that it's gone so well so when did you actually finish the book oh gosh that's a really good question i think november 2014 wow i might have finished the first draft but then of course you you write the first draft and then you you give it to your agent i'm very very lucky to have an agent who's extremely cerebral and careful and a very good editor and advisor and then that goes on to your publishing house and then they will have advice so it, you don't just as you know you don't just have to finish it in your in your room at home and then leave it you have to carry on working at it and the thing with me is just I have a tendency to think that the reader can read my mind so, so a, a common um, edit for my editor would be well there's we don't really understand why this is happening and I would look at it and think well, you want me to explain that oh, okay <laughs> so I think I added about maybe 20,000 words more. It ended up being significantly longer than the first draft because there were more scenes to write, more pacing, more kind of characterization, which I found really enjoyable. I much prefer editing than first draft. I hate first draft. So um, it was quite an enjoyable process. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I always love hearing writers' writing process. And Speaking of that, you know, your novel set in the 1890s and it really captures the spirit of the Victorian novel. It's not like you just tried to copy it. You sort of like took the best parts of the Victorian novel and kind of just imbued that into your novel. So what was your approach to writing a historical novel set in this very beloved time period? Well, I wanted to do something that I felt hadn't been done a great deal before. I mean, of course, I wouldn't be the first person to do it. But what interests me is not how different the past is and not how strange people were back in the olden days, but how similar it is and how human beings don't ever really change. So what I decided to do was to write a 19th century novel, which deployed lots of the novel um, forms that we think of with the big Victorian novel. So an omniscient narrator, um, you know, a kind of a big plot with a big cast of characters, social commentary, social justice involved in it, and sort of use all those 19th century fiction tropes. But very importantly, to write about the 19th century, the late 19th century, as it actually was. Because by the 1890s, really, this was the modern age. You know, we had electric lights anesthesia for surgery, trades unions, the beginnings of the feminist movement and suffrage, developments in science, developments in social justice. We had the London Underground. You know, this was a really modern age. So I thought I would have my cake and eat it by paying homage to the 19th century novel form, but disrupting it by writing about form of the 19th century that people don't quite grasp 
existed, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think that you're really successful in it because at first it definitely has that older feel. I hadn't really ever thought of people living in that era as it being a modern era. And so I think you really capture that very well. And I absolutely got that feeling. And it really helped me empathize and relate with these characters and kind of see them in a light that I hadn't before. Oh, I'm so pleased. That's really thrilling. Because um, I know it's it's kind of been a challenge for some readers. And um, I think some people have said, oh, I thought I was getting a Victorian novel, but, you know, they're not behaving like Victorians. And I think, well, I'm not quite sure how you, how you think Victorians behaved. You know, I'm 37, and I remember my great-grandparents very, very well. And they were born in the reign of Victoria. So my great great-grandparents were Victorian. Um, I was talking to my father-in-law the other day, who's 75. His grandparents were Victorian, and he can remember talking to them, and he said, you know, people don't understand that they spoke like us. You know, they didn't have a different Lexus or a strange accent. They weren't these sort of you know, creatures preserved in aspic. Of course, there was lots of stuff about the Victorian age that was very, very different, particularly with respect to women. But, you know, these were these were human beings. Really, we still live in a Victorian age, especially if you're over in the UK. Loads and loads of us live in Victorian houses. If you live in London, you're probably still using a Victorian sewer. If you go to hospital, the hospital is not certain to be, but likely to be a Victorian building. So, yeah, I mean, we are Victorians to a certain extent all the Victorians were like us. And that was sort of what I wanted to to try to achieve. So Cora especially does feel modern, you know, and more ahead of her time of what we would, at least I would consider, like how women are represented in Victorian novels that I've read. So how did you maintain the balance of like portraying Cora as this modern woman, but then also balancing that out with her historical context? And as you said, like the repression and kind of the things that women were dealing with at the time. Um, the main way I did it was by tethering myself to real Victorian women. So rather than looking at Victorian fiction, um, although I'll come on to that in a minute, rather than looking at Victorian fiction, I looked at letters between Victorian women, books about friendships between Victorian women, uh, Victorian women's diaries, um, accounts of Victorian women in society, speeches given by Victorian women. And, and that was where I built her and, and where I built Martha. So very often people say, you know, this is a woman who feels very modern. She, she's years ahead of her time. And I'm always a little bit confused as to what people mean. Because if I mean, you know, she's interested in science and medicine. Mm-hmm. Well, by 1874, a, a Victorian woman had set up a medical school for women in London. So this is 20 years before the book was set. There was a medical institution for women. If you say, oh, she's interested in social um, justice you know, and and workers' rights and housing. That feels very modern. Well, in 1888, a whole factory full of match girls, so this is illiterate girls, went on strike in London and brought about a huge change in the labour laws. If you say, well, she feels very modern because she has this very intimate quasi-sexual relationship with Martha, well, Victorian women very, very often shared a bed and had very intense kind of semi-physical relationships. So I think what I'm trying to challenge is the idea that Victorian women were these kind of, you know, they fainted away on couches and and needed smelling salts and couldn't breathe because their corsets were too tight and just cried all the time and were never allowed out because... 
that's not what they were like. And when it comes to sort of 19th century depictions of women, you know, Far From the Madding Crowd was published in 1874 and Bathsheba Mm. Everdeen runs her own farm. In Middlemarch by George Eliot, Dorothea Brooks spends absolutely ages looking at plans for better social housing. So I'm always sort of exercised by why we think that she's modern, you know? And I, I think I probably would have thought that. If I hadn't written it, I probably would have read it and said the same thing. So, yeah, it's just a really interesting question and something that I think about quite a lot and, and wonder how we ended up here, you know? It's almost as if we think that the suffragettes kind of were lying in wait in a massive egg underneath <laughs> London and then hatched in 1918. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> they kind of talk about it that way. Yeah, yeah, they do. You have so many good points. And like, now that you said that, like, logically, obviously, women were doing things for it does seem to challenge that stereotype that for some reason we have in our heads of these delicate women. But even, you know, Queen Victoria herself had oodles of children and like ruled the country with an iron fist. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And like once you, the great thing is that um, uh, once you become alert to it, you suddenly see it everywhere. So there's this program on British television called Antiques Roadshow, which is a little institution on Sunday nights. And um, I don't know what you might have it um, over where you are. I'm not sure. but We do too. Yeah, I do. love that Massive. show. Oh, you do? <laughs> it's so yes. good, isn't it? Well, the one last week was in this glorious country house in the countryside up north. And it had fallen into complete rack and ruin. It was totally derelict. And the man who owned it, um, titled gentleman, he really couldn't be bothered. And so he just said to his daughter, do the house up, would you? And so his, this young daughter, Project managed the renovation of a house. So she managed the tradespeople, she managed the people who did the garden, she managed the finances, and she returned it to splendour, and he thanked her by carving her name in wood panelling all the way around the room. Now, this is not unusual, but the minute you, you start to notice these things, you think, hang on a second, where did this image of Victorian women come from? Because everywhere you look, there are engineers, there are doctors, there are people who worked in the trade unions you know there were women that spoke seven languages and trekked up the sides of mountains so I'm kind of doing my bit for them really (laughs) yeah I I think it is really amazing and so now I want to go and like research this now like where our stereotype of Victorian women came from (laughs) exactly the answer will probably be patriarchy (laughs) that's gonna be the answer this is true. So I guess we're going to transition a little bit to talking about Will, who is another character in your book. And so Cora has gone to Essex to find uh, the Essex Serpent. She's really interested in naturalism. And there she meets uh, like a reverend who is different than she thought. And I really loved your characterization of Will. Um, in contemporary novels, religious leaders are often portrayed as uh, hypocrites or cult leaders or just not very nice people and to aren't really founded in reason. And Will is none of those things. He's a very intellectual man who has studied and his faith is really founded in, you know, the logic of his study. So, you know, how did his characterization come about? And was he inspired by anyone? And was that an intentional thing to defy those stereotypes a religious leader 
Yeah, it really was. And so there's a number of answers to this. And firstly, I should say that I was brought up in a very, very, very strict religious sect. So I was sort of surrounded by um, Reformation theology and kind of everything that you would associate with a very strict religious upbringing. But importantly, my father was a scientist. And so I was brought up by somebody who simultaneously believed in the six-day creation as set out in Genesis, but also had a telescope and used to take us out into the back garden to look at Saturn, to look at Jupiter and its moons and to make sure that we saw Halley's Comet passing over in 1988 um, and we'd do experiments and he had microscopes and he was very, very firmly kind of grasping the scientific world and didn't see that as being at odds with his fundamentalist Christian faith. So for a long time I've been exercised by this and about the idea that is faith and total rationality actually the sort of um, oxymoron that we tend to think it is? Can they really not dwell together? And I knew that if you say to a reader, there's a character in this novel who is a Victorian vicar, they will immediately have an idea of what he would be like. And I just thought, my heart, <laughs> I'm going to play with you. I'm going to let you think that he will be priggish and narrow-minded and boring. And Cora will think that too, and he will be the opposite. And then I sort of started to look around it. And actually, one of the things that we don't quite realise is that many of the people who were most interested in Darwin's theories um, and, you know, you know, the fashion for paleontology and fossil hunting and collecting butterflies were men of the cloth. Um, one suspects that they didn't always have that much to do. <laughs> so, so they were occupying their time. And there is a book that I mentioned in The Essex Serpent that was published in 1885 by an anonymous Essex rector on the high antiquity of the earth. So this Essex vicar in, eight, in the 1880s was writing a book saying, of course, the earth is not 6,000 years old. Of course, it is millions of years old. Of course, there are fossils. So... Again, it's about this desire to kind of disrupt and challenge what people think, to not let a reader rest easy and say, I know what's coming, this is a Victorian novel, but to nudge them in the ribs and say, actually, I'm going to show you something different. Yeah, he's definitely not your um, average country vicar, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I loved his characterization and I loved his family and I was surprised at the kind of person he was as we kind of got to know him better. Once Cora and Will meet, they have these fantastic discussions about faith and reason, and it feels like that that's all they do for like a certain segment of the novel. I feel like it's a great way to kind of explain what's going on culturally, but then to like reveal some of their characters. But one thing that I really appreciated was that it wasn't too, well, as we would say, like preachy or like explicit and like what we were supposed to take away from those conversations. Was that like a byproduct of the characters? Like, was that something that the characters kind of did on their own as you developed them? Or was that something intentional on your part to kind of keep away from like telling people how to take these conversations? Um, it was something that I did have to work quite hard at. And I'm pleased that you didn't find it too preachy because I was that is something I was really worried about. You know, there's a scene where Cora's son asks Will what sin is and they have a little discussion about sin. And at that point, I thought, oh, Sarah, it's still very well writing a novel of ideas, but can we not have too many? So I did have to keep an eye on it. And, and what I tried to do was to make sure that 
all of the discussions advanced their psychology in some way, um, advanced their relationship in some way, moved them a little bit closer to a kind of moment of crisis. Because you can't really have a novel where people just sit around and discuss philosophy and then go home. <laughs> you know, um, and that, that sounds like an Irish Murdoch novel. You know, there has to be a moment of um, progression, you know. And it was, it was difficult. It was something I had to keep a bit of an eye on. Um, because I can go on, and I, I would have let my characters go on if I hadn't disciplined myself. Yeah, I I really appreciated your characterization, and it felt real to me. Like, I felt like I had met him, you know, somewhere, and just the way that their discussions worked. Like, and the scene that you mentioned where um, Will takes Cora's son off to you know, the beach, and he's like, they're throwing rocks, and that was one of my favorite scenes. I really liked that scene, and I just thought it was just so well done and so, you know, delicately done. And so I greatly appreciated that. Oh, that's really wonderful to hear. Thank you. I'm really pleased. I think I do feel an affection for him. And it's born out of my, you know, having spent a life around people of faith. And so, you know, I was never going to write about it in a in a contemptuous way. So, yeah, I'm really pleased that rang too. That's really good. So I guess the next question that we have is that, you know, one of the things that we talked about you know in our in our back discussions was that there was a sense of fear and how it relates to the unknown so I don't want to give any spoilers so I'm going to talk around it a little bit but you'll know what I'm talking about so when Cora runs off I do. Oh, yeah, yeah yeah so when Cora runs off you know to find the Essex serpent um they don't know what it is and there's a lot of superstition in the town and there's a lot of fear because uh they don't know what it is and you know Cora's sure it's like a living fossil and different things so As fear relates into the novel, um, how does fear um, shape and motivate uh, the characters? You balance so many different versions of what people thought the Essex Serpent was and all the layers of meaning in the Essex Serpent. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, So one of the things that I'm most exercised by is forcing the reader to engage with the text in the way that a character does. So I don't want my readers to be passive and to just kind of, um, you know, accept the story happening. I want them to, to be engaged with it. And in order for them to do that, I need to hold off the reveal about what the Earthic Serpent is for as long as possible. Because the minute you see what the monster is, you're not afraid of it anymore. You know, you think of Jaws, which is very much my favourite film. Yes. And, yes, um, you know, the shark is absolutely terrifying. But the moment you see it, you know, you're like, oh, okay, I'm not quite sure why I was so worried about that. That was one thing. So just keeping it nebulous, keeping it at arm's length was really important to facilitate the reader being engaged with it. But the other thing is this. I'm really interested in how fear manifests itself in different consciousnesses. So if the three of us were sitting in a room having a bin doing this, which would be really lovely, and we were in a kind of isolated inn on Dartmoor and the lights went out and something white passed by the window rather slowly and made a strange noise Mm. and then the lights came back on what I saw and what you saw and what Autumn saw would all be slightly different and the difference would be what was in our own minds so the things that worry me the things that most scare me are not what may scare you and so each of our reactions to that moment would be totally valid and full of a genuine fear but they would be completely different so I wanted the characters to respond to the Essex Serpent, to create the Essex Serpent, to see the Essex Serpent according to themselves. So, for example, when the schoolgirls have their moment of kind of mass hysteria, 
don't see the Essex Open the way that girls who are kind of prepubescent and just coming into womanhood and sexuality might see this kind of slightly phallic object. They see it very differently from, say, Cracknell, who lives way out on the marsh and who's lost his son and who's lost his wife and who's lost his sheep. You know, his terror is very different. And Stella, who's got this kind of strange delusion, her obsession with the colour blue, she sees it very differently too. So, yeah, it's about kind of the way we build our fears, the way we nurture them. Because half the time we want we want our prejudices, right? We want our little fears. We want our little nightmares because they're ours and we made them. That's so true. And in the last year, I've had to do a lot of really brave and scary things. And it is amazing how you can build these things up in your head. And then once you get through it, it just kind of seems silly, but at the time, like it's so real. And as I read the book, like there was so many times where I was trying to like guess what was going on and I was wrong every time. Like I, I was completely wrong. And at the end I was like, Oh, and then like, I had that moment. I feel like I had that moment with the townspeople where I was like, Oh, that's what this was. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I had to face up to that, you know, that was the big, as a writer, that was probably the biggest challenge for me. It was that there was no way that I could conclude the book in in a way that was totally satisfactory. Because if I, I don't know, I don't want to do a spoiler, but options would have included a vast monster, you know, crawling out of the black water and flaming the village to the ground with its monstrous breath. Um, well, if I'd done that, everything else that I had done, which was very carefully and accurately building what I saw as the real truth about the 19th century would have collapsed because if you have a sort of supernatural conclusion then everything else kind of you know you've broken a contract so to speak so I knew that you know I had to end it in a way which was kind of psychologically true and which set the characters up in a way that I found satisfying but yeah that was unquestionably the hardest part of the book yeah and you did so well with your your setup and how you we followed along and in the novel, and so you had like the different months. Um, how did you decide, like as you were building up to this conclusion, how did you decide what information to include in scenes throughout the novel versus the letters that you have, you know, scattered here and there? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think what I had to keep in mind at all times was this idea of, of psychological truth, of emotional truth. So it would be tempting to seed throughout the novel huge amounts of information about exactly what every house in a village looked like, exactly what uh, Cracknell sees when he sees something moving in the water, you know, great log books full of sightings and the exact time of day and the tide when it happened, all of that. I could have done but what was much more important to me was the feelings of the characters which is why the letters were very important because a letter will enable the reader to see more deeply into someone's heart than if the narrator just says Cora was feeling a bit sad or Cora was feeling a bit angry I found the letters kind of quite a good way of accessing their inner kind of motivations and their psychological development in a way that would have been a bit crass if I'd have just delivered the information I think I think that's true because like at one point in my life I was reading a ton of Victorian literature and they always felt kind of 
well, they more than kind of, they always felt very one dimensional. And as you're saying, like I was being told how they felt about things, but not actually feeling that they felt about things too. And I think maybe that's one of the biggest differences in reading your book. And maybe that's why people get disoriented when they're like, wait, I was an expect, I was expecting a Victorian novel is because these people actually have feelings <laughs> and they actually like yeah. care about stuff. And you like actually see that they're humans with desires and needs and wants, you know. And I love yes, that. exactly, yeah. Yeah, so I think that was really great, and I really appreciated that. We could keep talking about the Essex Serpent, but you know, we don't want to. We don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it. So <laughs> probably stop at this point before we get carried away. Um, but you know, as we've mentioned, you know, we're really passionate about bringing to light female voices that haven't always been in the limelight as far as literature goes. And, you know, we have a whole set of women that we're introduced to here, but um, who are the women that you've been ex- exposed to who have really like inspired or influenced your writing? Um, the, my most truthful answer to this is one of the world's most famous and beloved writers. So I feel like I'm not bringing anyone new to light, but I am um, a passionate devotee of Hilary Mantel and have been for well over a decade. Um, I'm one of those really annoying people that keep saying, I was into her before you were, <laughs> because um, obviously Wolf Hall made her a global superstar and um, she's acknowledged as being, you know, one of our best writers, if not the best. But I first read her um, about 12 years ago, uh, Beyond Black, I read. And then I read her memoir, Giving Up the Ghost. And then she saw evil when she was seven. And there's this extraordinary description of her going into the back garden while her mother's in the kitchen and she sees this swarm of flies and it kind of coalesces into this form that's watching her and it fills her with a sudden knowledge that there is such a thing as evil and that you know, she has the capacity for wickedness in her and it fundamentally changed her. And it's something that's really visible through her writing, I think. So she's, I hold her up as this kind of god, really. Um, I can't ever meet her. I would just, just fall over. Um, but there's <laughs> other women writers that continue to kind of surprise and amaze me. Helen MacDonald's Eighties for Hawk was this example of kind of cerebral writing, which was also Mm. nakedly truthful um, and nakedly open. And I think those two things together are quite an extraordinary achievement. And there's a writer called Elizabeth Jane Howard um, that I've written about before who wrote the Cazalet Chronicles. And she was very overlooked as a writer because she was a woman because her books were domestic but if you read them what you find is this extraordinarily psychologically cuteness about her characters and a real daring in in how she's prepared to write these incredibly flawed men and women shockingly flawed sometimes actually and when I first read them someone someone does something really wicked and unforgivable and I I went cold all over um so yeah those are some of my guiding lights I think well, there's so many good ones, and I haven't I haven't read Wolf Hall yet. It's been on my my TBR, but I think I I definitely need to bump up Hilary Mantel. Would, which one would you suggest uh, starting with? Um, I would suggest starting with Flood, actually, which um, not that many people have read. It's it's quite short, which is always a good thing in my book, um, and it is this absolutely amazing account of a small village church in Yorkshire in the 50s who are told that they are being sent a young man who's going to shake them up and make them more modern, and on one stormy night, this young man in a clerical 
hysterical collar and knocks on the door and he introduces himself as Flood and it's the devil. Yeah. So basically the devil has turned up in this country church and it contains oh an incredibly sexy scene of the devil taking a nun's wimple off in a bed and breakfast in Yorkshire. It's incredible. It's so, so good. So people tend to think of her as being a, a historical novelist, which she primarily is now, but um, she, she's written across all sorts of genres and she writes the gothic really, really well. So I'm always buying people flood and saying, yeah. I was into her a long time ago. She tried to find her early work. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, well, definitely, as pretty much, I almost actually pull up Goodreads right now, but I will, <laughs> I will uh, have some self-control. Um, so I'm not sure if you can tell us anything, but I feel like, you know, we really want to ask, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? Uh, yeah, I'm, um, I'm currently writing the last scene. <laughs> um, uh, I haven't been leaving the house very often and I haven't opened my curtains because I'm, I'm trying to get it done. I'm writing a novel set in contemporary Prague and I'm kind of, it's my third book and I, in some ways I'm seeing it as the last book in a Gothic trilogy um, where I feel like I'm playing around with the Gothic. So my first book was a kind of strange, creepy, contemporary, slightly Gothic and The Essex Serpent is kind of, you know, big Victorian monster gothic and this one is gothic horror um and so yeah it's been creeping me out and giving me nightmares and oh. i'll be really glad when it's over and um, <laughs> wow. i can hand it on to someone else <laughs> well, that sounds really amazing and uh definitely before it comes out i'm gonna go back and read your first book so because i i really love thematic trilogies or whatever when authors do that like maybe totally different stories but they seem to go together that's just really amazing. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in that too. And in, and I'm really interested in taking a form, which the Gothic is, it's not a genre, it's a form, and kind of um, playing with it in different ways, you know, and, and sort of teasing it out and pushing it as far as it can go in one direction and then as far as it can go in the other. So, um, yeah, it's been kind of quite an interesting project and a project that I didn't quite realise that that was what I was doing until until I was halfway through. And then I... I thought, oh, oh, that's what I've been doing all this time. Okay. <laughs> this just shows a lot of, you know, writing versatility and thought and talent. So, you know, congratulations that you've almost finished this. Thank you so much. I'm, um, I can't believe that I've managed to, uh, to kind of do it during a year that's been so kind of hectic. So, um, yeah, thank you. As soon as it's done, I aim to finish it on Wednesday, and then I live in Norwich, which is close to lots of wonderful beaches. So the minute I email it off, we're driving out to the sea, and I'm going to run in screaming <laughs> and celebrate having finished. <laughs> sounds like you absolutely deserve that. That sounds perfect. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yes. Well, I think that's the end of our discussion about the Essex Serpent. We will have... Uh, your other book, After Becomes the Flood, linked in our show notes, so that way our listeners can read it before your new book comes out. And we are so excited that every all of our friends here in the U.S. can now finally buy this book on this side of the pond. <laughs> you know, so thank you so much, Sarah Perry, for talking to us about the Essex Serpent. And as we mentioned, it is now out in the U.S. by Custom House. It is out in the U.K. by uh, Serpentine Press. And you can find out more about her and her work on her website, sarahperry.net, or on her Twitter account, which is at Sarah G. Perry. And as I mentioned, we will have links to her books in our show notes so you can get copies for yourselves. Hopefully after this discussion, you want to read all of her books immediately, and you absolutely should. <laughs> 
<laughs> so as for Kendra and I, you can find me, Autumn Privet, on Twitter and Instagram at Autumn Privet. And you can find Kendra at KD Winchester. And thank you to everyone who's left us such lovely reviews in the last few weeks. We are really thrilled about those. And if you listen to our discussions and enjoy them, please leave us a review wherever you listen. It really helps other people find great discussions about books by or about women. And thank you all so much for your support. And thank you for listening. And we will talk to you next time. Bye, guys. Bye.